Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. Hi, everyone. Uh, we are here on another session of our podcast, Astela Around the World, and we have here with us today Jenny Fieldings. Jenny is a dear friend, a Calvin fellow that we met uh, four years ago for the program, and a, a lot has changed in our lives. It will be very interesting to go over it and see what Jenny is doing. She is a pre-seed investor and mentor to hundreds of founders around the world. She is a founder and managing partner at The Fund, and she's also a generalist investor. She's passionate uh about fintech, healthcare, automation, and the future of work. Prior to the fund, Jenny spent seven and a half years as managing director at Techstar, where she invested uh, in a bunch of uh, more than 100 uh, companies. Three of them become a unicorn and a total portfolio market cap of over $8 billion. She is also second-time entrepreneur, and she knows how challenging it is to build a, a great product, inspire teams, and keep the lights on. So she spends uh, her time working to surround and support founders with uh, research uh, that they need to survive plus thrive. And recently, she also accepted the invitation to be a teacher on Columbia University, which is also very interesting and will have more details on that. So, Jenny, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's an honor to have you here, actually. <laughs> thank you so much. So excited to, to be here and can't wait to come to uh, Brazil and visit you. You have to come to Brazil, actually. <laughs> yes, we're, we'll be expecting you here. Jenny, it's so uh, nice to meet you. So let's start from the beginning. We'd love to learn a little bit about your early days and anything you'd like to share on your background and values that you built early on that you still bring till date. Yeah, so um, I'm actually born and raised in New York City, which seems you know somewhat rare. And fun fact, I actually live on the same block that I grew up on. You know, I've lived in many countries. I've traveled to hundreds of countries to end up on the same street that you grew up on is kind of small town. But I think that encapsulates me in many ways, which is I love my community. I love where I grew up and where I'm from, but I love exploring the world. Yeah, grew up in New York and, um, you know, went to kind of traditional schools, I actually went to law school and had a very uh, brief stint as a lawyer and then really found my passion in entrepreneurship by accident. And so I call myself a typical empath founder, meaning I wasn't looking to start a company. I was looking to solve a problem in the world. It ended up being a startup. So, um, yeah, that was kind of my, my journey into the tech world. And uh, you started working at the banks. How was that? And uh, tell us a little bit more of uh, what kind of uh, problem you were solving when you ended up founding your first startup. 
Yeah. So um, I went to law school and like many people ended up, um, you know, in finance at some point. And um, I actually really loved it. I wasn't one of those people that kind of suffered. I thought from an intellectual perspective, it was really interesting. I worked with really smart people. I was actually enjoying a career as a banker. I mean, it wasn't that long, but it was definitely kind of a few years. I was actually in the investment banking group. So I kind of abandoned the legal part pretty early. And then I had a problem. And the problem was I had a boyfriend that lived in Germany and I was making a lot of international calls. And those calls at the time, 2007, were quite expensive when you called on your mobile phone. And so my phone bill was like $1,000 a month. And I kind of looked around and I was like, huh, like everyone has these mobile phones and yet they're very prohibitive to call if you're not calling somewhere in the U.S., and so I just looked to solve a problem for myself. Didn't think of it as a startup. I thought of it as a solution to a problem that I personally had. Fast forward and I end up bootstrapping the company because I had saved a lot of money as a banker. <laughs> but I worked really until um, we had something that felt like we could launch. Um, set up in my apartment, had two co-founders who were technical. And the next thing you know, I've left this career in banking to do a crazy thing called a startup. Many of my friends thought I was nuts, right? Because I was kind of in that rising trajectory at a bank. But the truth was my family um, were both entrepreneurs in that they both work for themselves. They're not tech entrepreneurs, but they're small business owners. And so the model kind of growing up was really work for yourself. I was doing the opposite of that, right? Very corporate, big company, JP Morgan. Yeah, I just decided to take a leap of faith and, and go for it. Awesome. To, so to see if I understood your timeline correctly. So you left banking, you founded your startup, and then you made your way after that to BBC Digital yeah. and then to Techstars. Correct. Okay. We're curious to understand how you first ended up at Techstars and how you first met David Cohen and how did that merge happen? Yeah. So I learned a lot of hard lessons as I was um, running my companies, everything from wrong co-founders to wrong go-to-market to wrong investors. And I thought that there was ways that I could share my learnings with other founders so that they didn't make the same dumb mistakes that I made. And so really, I just started mentoring other startups. Like, I'm not sure we even called it that, but it was like I'd be introduced to a founder and I would just try to be helpful and kind of share little bits of what I knew Oftentimes you're introduced under the pretense of like helping someone with the product or helping someone because you have an area of expertise. But when you spend time with them, what you really help them with is a lot of interpersonal issues, a lot of things around getting out of their own way, storytelling, right? So raising money is all about storytelling. And so just being a sounding board for founders was something that I naturally gravitated to. So the way I found myself to Techstars is I became a mentor. I'd heard about Techstars and I thought, oh my gosh, if that was around when I had started my company, that would have been really helpful. And so I started mentoring and um, really just fell in love with it and, and kind of fell in love with the mission uh, around Techstars of supporting entrepreneurs at the earliest stage of their journey in a way that I had never felt supported. That was the journey to Techstars. And after of all those uh, seven and a half years that uh, you followed uh, startups starting from the very early stage, pre-seed, and then going to the late stage with uh, some of them becoming unicorn, uh, public, and so forth, how do you see the challenges moving from the, the early stage until the late stage of a founder's trajectory? 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at the early stage, it's very basic things like finding product market fit. Is there a pull from the market around your product? So it's very product focused. Usually the teams are quite small. You know, the mentoring that I'm doing is often around telling a better story, co-founder dynamics, just like very basic foundational governance of the business in many ways. And then of course, around is there a market for this and all the kind of customer discovery you need to do around that. You know, as these companies mature, the businesses become more complex. And so, you know, I have a company called Chainalysis in the blockchain analytics space that started off as three guys and and a prototype. And now they have literally hundreds of employees. And so the challenges around setting a culture, running a multinational organization, because they literally have employees around the world, regulatory issues, right? Um, And so... All of those things then come to the forefront later on. But at the early days, they're much more about people. How did you prepare yourself? You know, you started with seed investing and then, as you mentioned, you accompanied them throughout the whole trajectory. How did you prepare yourself and make sure that, you know, you were ready to give advices at different stages throughout the company? Like, I bet there was a steep learning curve and lots of challenges happening there. So any experience and advices you can share that would be helpful. Yeah, I'm not sure what I can share because the truth is I'm really a pre-seed and seed investor. Like, that's where I spend my time. And as the companies grow, I become more of a super fan and friend to the founder, right? My job is to help them get funded into that next level. And then my job as an investor really transitions at some point. And I mean, I have a company that went public and the best thing I can do for that founder is just be a supporter, you know, on the sidelines. And so I'm always here if they need something, but I'm not sitting on board seats and I'm not instrumental in those businesses. So I'd say my utility is really in the first few years. And after that, there's plenty of great people that can help the companies. And then, Jenny, after all this time at Techstar, you ended up uh, building the alternative of founding the fund. How did the transition happen? So while I was at Techstars, I saw there was this interesting gap in the market, and that was the funds in New York, especially where I live, were getting larger and larger. And so with that, it was harder and harder for them to write the small checks into those pre-seed rounds. And so when we say pre-seed, we're talking about rounds that are about 500k US to maybe you know maybe two million. So early stage companies that are just kind of getting going. And um, if you're running a $500 million fund, you can't really be writing 200K checks. Like the math just doesn't work. Those founder or those um, funds have just started to go kind of upstream and meaning that those rounds have gotten really big. So the average seed round now in New York is like three and a half million dollars. And so I saw this interesting gap at the pre-seed really at the early stage because your average founder really can't raise $3 million out of the gate. You know, maybe if they're a buzzy second-time founder or they have a lot of traction. But, you know, most founders kind of need that support. Maybe it's angels, friends, and family, that kind of early capital at the beginning. And I saw a gap. So while I was at Techstars, I kind of convinced them to let me run this uh, side hustle fund where I was just writing small checks into um, local companies that I was seeing on the ground that really fit this archetype. And many of them were Techstars companies, coincidentally, which was great. Um, So it was a natural pipeline for my fund and also just a great place to put more money into the system at the early stage. So that was kind of how it started. What I did was I called all my founder friends that had built kind of iconic companies in New York 
And I said, hey, like, are you guys seeing the same thing I'm seeing, which is the funds getting bigger and hard for these founders to raise a million dollars because they're going angel to angel collecting 25K checks. It's taking quite a while. And they all said, yeah, that's like really interesting. We're seeing that as well. So I pooled everyone's capital into a fund that was all founder sourced. Um, So we had 50 um, limited partners, the people that gave us money. They were all founders. And we invested in 50 companies. Um, And so we started just very organically in New York as an experiment, like, hey, would this work? Founders supporting founders. You know, we built the kind of infrastructure for that community. So we've got a very active Slack channel. We've got a CRM. We do events and really just started very locally. And that was 2018. And that little fund is like, I mean, man, if I had been writing larger checks, 250K checks in those, like that would have been pretty great because that fund is doing really, really well. And it was kind of our proof of concept fund. And then in 2020, as the world kind of shut down, we started getting inbound from founders and operators around the world saying, hey, we heard what you built in New York. I think that would be really great here, kind of fill in the blank location. And so we started really activating these nodes of founder communities around the world. We have about a dozen of these communities now everywhere from Australia to Austin, Texas, of the same uh, kind of setup, which is really founder capital sourced, investing in local founders. And so now we've invested in about 175 companies um, really across the world. And yeah, we're just getting started. So it started as a side gig and four years later, 175 companies across the world. So (laughs) very scalable model. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's um, we're kind of pioneering something interesting. So usually as a general partner of a fund, you know, you can only have so many portfolio companies, right? Because you can only kind of add value to a a limited number. And I'm sure that, that you guys feel that when your own fund. What we've created is a community. And so instead of a one-to-many, we call many-to-many, which means that the founders and operators in our community, whether they're LPs, the people that give us money, or their portfolio companies are all supporting and helping each other. And it's as opposed to like Jenny having to help this big portfolio. I'd say once a week, I get a Slack message from a founder who says, oh my gosh, you guys were so helpful with this. And I kind of think to myself, like, I didn't talk to that person. And I call my co-founder, Scott, and he goes, well, I didn't talk to her. But what they mean is that someone in the community helped them with something, made a connection, made an introduction, reviewed their deck, provided a resource. So that's how we think that we can really scale this and why we call it kind of community-powered venture capital, because we think that at the early stage, founders supporting founders in itself as a community is scalable. And what is the strategy behind I mean, Do you appoint a responsible for working with each of your companies specifically? Or, or how do you engage and you match the startups with uh, the other founders that can help? I mean, a lot of it happens organically, but all of our founders have a vested interest in actually helping because they're all LPs. So they want to see the portfolio thrive. And then we find naturally that these organic nodes kind of come together. And sometimes they're geographic based because they meet at an event. We have hosted a brunch last week here in New York. 45 founders showed up. You know, many of them hadn't seen each other in a long time. Lots of connections are made. And sometimes they're around areas of interest, right? And so we've got this little like Web3 group that meets every month and talks about interesting issues. And sometimes when I drop in, those people are literally located around the world. So we find that these communities kind of pop up or they're organic in the way that they spring up. 
And then we try to kind of help the process by facilitating the tools. Um, again, the shared CRM, the shared Slack channel, the events, we try to kind of put out the raw ingredients for them to thrive. But we're not so prescriptive of like, hey, you're like mentoring this company. We often find they find each other. Are you prescriptive when it comes to geographies like growth and geographies? Is there do you have a different investment strategy for different ecosystem? Is there a criteria to go to the new ecosystem or the value proposition you offer to local partners? Is there a proper growth strategy there? Or is that also organic? It's been organic to date in that I always joke that I just get inbound from founders and operators and locations saying like, hey, I heard about you guys, love to get involved. And I delete the first 10 emails because I'm like, I'm too busy. I can't be thinking about this. Like we shouldn't be in Africa, you know? So it's like, I, I like delete, delete. And at some point it's just like, oh my gosh, there are just too many people that really want to get involved in something. So kind of joke, I'm not really deleting emails, but we kind of get the pull from the community. And the reason we're in Australia, which is like not super easy to manage from a time zone perspective, living in New York and lots of challenges. But we just had so many founders and operators over there that just were screaming that there just wasn't this early stage capital available and there wasn't this support for founders and community. And at some point we were just like, okay, like let's do it. And one of the nice things about our community is that we can help a founder in Australia when they want to, you know, set up in the US or they want to scale into the US, like we can be that connective tissue through this community. And so, um, yeah, we're excited about even more international expansion. We've invested in six companies in Nigeria. That's an area that we've spent some time in and we're starting to do some in Latam and excited to do more in Brazil, in fact. And we will definitely go over the differences of what you see in each ecosystem because it's very interesting when uh, that you have uh, the perspectives of regions and uh, languages and so forth. But I wanted to understand a little bit more how you organize the vehicles and the people around uh, each ecosystem. So do you create a specific fund for this group of uh, founders that uh, come to you and so that they are exposed just to their own region or on a certain sense, they are also exposed to the other areas and regions that you invested so far? I mean, our fund is one big experiment. So we try things and we see what works. So we did start and our roots were to start individual funds. And so, you know, if you were living in Austin, you could invest in the Austin fund and just have exposure to the Austin entrepreneurs. What we found out was that most of those founders and operators who are LPs want, actually wanted exposure to a few of our communities. And so kind of the next iteration that we haven't really announced, but is in the works, is access is a vehicle that will allow our LP-based founders and operators to have exposure to multi-geos. So we're excited about that. But really, all of this would not have been possible without the platform that we use, which is AngelList. Um, just they make it super easy for us, very cost effective. You know, if we were trying to do this six, seven, eight years ago and we would have to spin up each fund and the legal costs and the back office would have been prohibitive for such a small fund. But we were able to do it by leveraging platforms that are already out there that are really geared towards emerging managers, small funds. So I'm not going to ask you to pick favorites because you have 175 of your babies, but are there a few top of mind that you can share with us uh, what the thesis and the mission of your portfolio companies? Yeah, so we're generalists. We invest, you know, across verticals, but I'd say our real 
bread and butter falls into kind of three categories that I call the table stakes economy. And that's really like, what are the things that you need to live? And that's health, work, and money. Directionally, that's where the majority of our portfolio falls. So, you know, we do a lot of fintech payments, things around making uh, transactions just um, easier and uh, cheaper with less friction. Um, we spend a lot of time in health, and that can be everything from deep integrations into hospital systems to health and wellness apps, right, that are very consumer focused. And then our third category is really around the future of work. That's everything from like B2B productivity to new modalities for work. That Those are kind of our bread and butter. We like to say that we're not an impact fund, but we're kind of looking at companies that are world positive, like companies that are making a good impact in the world. When you look at our portfolio, you won't see ad tech and you won't see some of these other areas, which are great businesses and we have nothing against, but we want to be putting our money behind companies that we think are making a positive impact. And with that, although we don't have a mandate around any type of diversity, we're you know pretty proud to say that oh, about 40% of our capital has gone into female founders. And that's really by nature of the fact that our community is really diverse. So the deal flow we see is diverse and the decision makers, the people that are picking the companies are also diverse. Now we've got kind of four years of data and um, yeah, it's a pretty diversified portfolio in terms of areas that we focused on and then in terms of the backgrounds of the founders. That's fantastic. Do you, working with the data, do you find patterns or different patterns between the, the ecosystems or mainly just between uh, emerging markets and more mature markets? Do, do you differentiate the solutions that are coming and types of uh, founders and teams? Yeah, I mean, when the work that we've done kind of in Africa or in LATAM has mostly been fintech and infrastructure, right? So in more developing markets, really kind of some of those areas of building foundations of communities are areas that we focused on. So I'm not sure that we would do in a developing country, I'm not sure that we would do a consumer app because that's just not a space that we know so well, but something that's very foundational to the economy growing and the kind of infrastructure developing is a little bit more in our, our sweet spot. So we see a lot of that. And in terms of like patterns that we see in uh, the U.S., just we see a lot of healthcare, for example, because we really do have like a healthcare crisis happening. And so I'd say you start to see waves of this. So we about three years ago invested in a company in the mental health space called Headway. And um, it was really, I would say, an early player in that space. And I think until more recently, it was a topic that was a little more taboo to, to speak about. That company quickly went on to raise about 70 million from Andreessen Horowitz at a close to unicorn status. So like very quickly kind of rose. And through that, we started seeing all these mental health solutions uh, pop up and very verticalized, like around different types of communities. And so I think that what's interesting is like you have one company that starts to become successful and then you see these kind of waves happening. We try to kind of think about what the next things are and find entrepreneurs that aren't just building derivative products, but that are really thinking about what are some of the next waves, even if they're not popularized at that time. And a follow-up question on this. You said that you have a lot of data and that you collect a lot of data. 
do you have any strategy of how you work with all those databases that you have and how you add value to companies based on what you are collecting and seeing? Well, I wouldn't say that we were collecting a lot of data. I'm say I sorry if I said that. I'd say we have the data around diversity. Oh, all right. Okay. I got it. All right. <laughs> we have the numbers, but no, we're not collecting much data at all. We're not data driven, we're people driven. I see. Okay. <laughs> all right. So Jenny, on top of everything you do at the fund, you are also, as Laura mentioned, teaching at Columbia University, a course called Venturing to Change the World. Can you share a little bit about the program? Who's the persona that goes to your classes and what are the main advices that you give to your students? Yeah. So I went to Columbia and I'd always done like a little bit of drop-in in the business school, taught a class here or there. And business school students are amazing. They're very much on their journey, right? And business school is just kind of a, a stop through in the U.S. Undergrads, I really felt like is where you can actually make an impact. And so when I was an undergrad, I got kind of marched off to law school because that was like what you did if you weren't technical and you weren't going to be a doctor. And it was like kind of like crossed them off a list. And now there's just like a lot more options for students like at high performing universities. But I still find that many of them, they're getting kind of channeled into traditional professions. So I, you know, really started this class with the hope that we can inspire students to think about careers. Maybe it's not that they leave school and start a startup, but that they are really thinking about how entrepreneurship and business creation like really is how we move forward as a society and that it's fine to go work at a corporation if that's what you want to do. But we also have a lot of resources when we come out of universities like Columbia, and it's actually a great time to start a, a company. It was a really exciting opportunity for me to touch undergrads who don't get a lot of exposure to entrepreneurship. And when I was there, they got none because that was a different time. And now fast forward when everyone's in a startup, it seems they're still not getting a ton just to be able to kind of touch them in a different way is, is really meaningful to me. And so I've been teaching for five years. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been one of the most unexpected joys of my career. And uh, what kind of life advice you give or you would give if a student asks you? <laughs> I mean, it's complicated because like, you know, I think a lot of them have a lot of student debt they need to pay off and there's a lot of practicalities. So I totally get going to a company and, you know, paying your loans and like paying your dues, so to speak, just learning in a more traditional setting. But I think in your 20s, it's a great opportunity to explore and just figure out what your true passion is. I went to law school and fast forward all these years later, many of the people I went to law school who became very successful lawyers are just not very happy in their career. They grinded it out. And the thing that I'm so grateful for is that I every day I wake up and I say, like, how did I get this job? How did I get so lucky to do the work that I do? Because I actually, it doesn't feel like work. It fuels me and my life. And like, what an amazing feeling. And so the thing that I would say is to undergrads, the thing that I do say is definitely pay your dues, work at places, get good training, develop mentors, all those things. But spend your 20s figuring out what you are actually passionate about because like you've got to spend most of your time is actually spent working. It's not with your family. It's not doing other things. So like you have to be able to make that into your passion. So Jenny, we are coming up to the end of our conversation and we'd love to finish up with some philosophical questions that we ask our guests. Yeah, so the first one is, how optimistic are you with the future of life and of humanity? Oh my gosh, that's a deep one. 
ladies, I need a drink for that. <laughs> it was easier until this point. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of awful things happening in the world right now and a lot of uncertainty. You know, it is a very challenging time. I think that like I'm inspired every day by the entrepreneurs that I work with, many of who are trying to make the world a better place. And so I'm optimistic because there's so many and more and more and they're flooding out of universities and my inbox is full with mission driven founders. And so as long as people are building, you know, products and services that are trying to make the world a better place, even in very small ways, I'm optimistic that things will get better. I mean, if you think about the future and about what founders are doing What are the issues or the problems that you can foresee being uh, resolved uh, in your lifetime? I mean, we invest a lot in health, right? And we feel that if you're not healthy, I mean, think about when you wake up and you don't feel good. It's like your whole day is ruined. Other people's days that you interact with are ruined. And so health is just the foundation of life, right? And so I'm really excited about some of the solutions. I mean, I mentioned one around mental health, right, which has been somewhat neglected, but I think is now coming to the forefront. And so, you know, very excited about investing in companies that incentives are aligned, which they're very misaligned in a place like the U.S., um, where you've got healthcare providers that are not on the same page as the insurance companies that are not in the same page as the hospital systems. And so, you know, services that are aligned that I think will just make everyone's experience better. As I mentioned, like FinTech is a place that we spend a lot of time and kind of removing the barriers Uh, for people to transact, I think is pretty amazing, right? And so that spans everything from creator economy, where people are empowered to run their own small businesses in a way that they never were. We invested in a company called Dash, which is providing a mobile wallet throughout Africa, where people can transact, they can get their finances together, and they can do all these things from the comfort of their home, because they don't necessarily have a stable internet connection at home, and that they could do it from their phone. So we're excited about bringing those technology solutions, things, you know, around verticals of that nature to everyone. And what about creating solutions that we need for sustainability? Do you think we can dream of that being tackled in the next few years as well? You know, I have a somewhat dark vision on sustainability and climate, which is I am a, you know, a huge supporter and, and try to do as much as I can. But I do feel like if people don't have the money they need to live, the health that they need to feel well, like really the basics, it's very hard, except for very privileged people to spend their time on things like sustainability and the environment. So I guess I want to get the table stakes in place. We can all focus on that. I'm very excited that climate is becoming such a a movement. And I'm thrilled that many of like friends and colleagues are starting funds around it. And there's just a lot of innovation. It's not an area that we necessarily focus on, again, because we're kind of focused on like, what are the basics that you need to live? Now, obviously, clean air, clean water are, are actual basics. But for someone that's just unable to pay their rent or um, is unable to breathe because of a, a health issue, it's probably not the first thing that they're thinking about. But I'm thrilled that it's coming to the forefront and um, that venture capital is flowing into it. I mean, it's amazing. That's a very interesting view. Very interesting. Unique perspective that we've seen so far. Well, it's an honest one. I mean, I think like we could be optimistic and just say like, yeah, all these things are great. And they are. But just for us, it's there are other areas that we have to stay focused on. So, you know, and I totally see that like if your mental health and your health is not in place, like if you're not looking at your inner world, you know, the outer world's 
can't be a priority, right? You first need to take care of yourself to take care of the world. So sustainability comes from that place. Like you have the basics, right? That you really need to take care of first. Yeah, but we do look at areas, I mean, like lab-grown meat. I mean, we've looked at a few of those and, you know, those are, they definitely intersect with health. A lot of the sustainability stuff, um, I think is amazing and it does intersect with kind of our health focus. So yeah, we definitely look at it and are excited by it. Awesome. And then moving to our final icebreaker, tell us uh, something that you are excited about and something that uh, you are currently scared about. <laughs> well, I'm in the process of finishing a, a fundraise for one of my various funds, and um, I'm excited to be done. It was a very um, humbling experience and very uh, busy pitching. And so I'm excited because I'm going to Europe for almost a month, so all of the month of May. And now I have new investors, LPs, in Europe, so I get to go visit LPs in places like Italy and France and Spain. So that to me, as someone from New York, is like ultimate delight. So I'm very excited about that. Oh my God, look at you. <laughs> Jenny, you just you just um, painted a picture of what I want to be in the future. <laughs> I was very specific when we got that, that LP in Italy. I was like, so I'll have to come visit. And he was like, you'll definitely have to come visit, Jenny. Like, okay, good. Something that, you know, keeps me up at night is like, as we grow as a community, how can I keep the intimacy and the integrity and all the things that we started with when we were a small community of you founders and operators, and, and now we're several hundred strong. And so thinking about the strength of the community, because that's really where our deal flow comes from. And that's really the basis of our fund is something that, you know, we always have to work on. It was something that I learned a lot about in Techstars. Um, and I'm always thinking about ways to improve it, change it and kind of move things along. So wow, this was so exciting. So many new perspectives. Awesome. That's interesting. Very good. Thank you so much. That was very interesting. A lot of uh, new perspectives and uh, the experience that you have is, is amazing on all the spectrum of activities that you do and what you've managed to build with the community and uh, and have all the founders, uh, supporting founders is, is something that is really impactful, really nice. We're really excited to do more in Brazil. So anyone that's interested in getting involved, uh, please reach out because we'd love to hear from you and, and really figure out how we can do more. We'll definitely think about it, build something in our minds and, and let you know. It will be wonderful. And also having all the founders from other regions and other different perspectives, sometimes um, the main ideas comes from awkward places and people. So we have to have all this kind of uh, people in our community to be able to find the best solution. So absolutely, we'll definitely follow up on you on that. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. This is awesome. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks, guys.